Good evening and welcome to A Gift From Somewhere Radio with Radio Tent House. Um, I'm here with my first guest of this series, Kintura Davis. Hi, Kintura. Hi. <laughs> good to see you, Billy. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> good to see you too. Um, so, okay, so this series basically is going to be a conversation with artists Um um, discussing their work through either a book or a film or some sort of um, work um, that has themes that link to some sort of book or film work that has themes that link to the artist's work. Um, and Kintura, you chose um, Junichiro Tanizaki's In Praise of Shadows, which is a text that I love. Um, can you tell us why you chose that one? Yeah, um, so I was in grad school when I the first time I read it and someone had recommended it and um, I picked it up. I love it. It's just a small, like, it's sort of like a long essay that lives in a small book. And Tanizaki talks about, you know, the book is about Japanese aesthetics, um, but uh, it's framed around shadow and how shadow, um, is sort of this like meaningful space, like literally, and then ex- extends into the figurative um, zone for me. And that's how that's kind of like influenced my work. But he um, does this thing where, you know, and I think a lot about perception and normally, I mean, I think the conventions here and, you know, if we're gonna, if I'm gonna sort of, categorize like west versus east or global south or whatever um there's a sense that um we are sort of like visual or sensory experience is best um understood in like the brightest of light um and uh or with intense clarity and Tanizaki offers this kind of counter to that, that um, shadows is also a space that can reveal other qualities, like a kind of condition that tells us other things about our sensory experience. And I think, you know, we think about things that we attribute to this sort of like space of shadow, mystery, uh, danger, um, obscurity, and while those things might be true in some contexts, it's not true in all contexts. And I think the book just does a really great job of um, fleshing out another way to see and understand our visual experience and identify other conditions that can inform us that's outside of you know, our sort of usual conventions. Um, so one of my favorite parts of the book is uh he's just talking i mean he goes from talking about like toilets um to um architecture i love that so much i actually love it so much yeah and (laughs) it's so just sort of the the sort of daily lived experience and he kind of draws a distinction between like you know electricity when that was invented um sort of started to change um our kind of like built experience and how we experience space. And then he's sort of lamenting for this period before electricity sort of took over the world, where you're viewing things by candlelight. 
Um, Japanese architecture embraces shadows with that sort of post and lentil kind of architecture um, that um, provides like extended shaded areas in and around the house um, and temples also. Uh, but there's this part where he's talking about um, lacquerware. Um, so like one common form of lacquerware, if you like go to a Japanese restaurant and get miso, it's that sort of light wood um, bowl that um, has traditional lacquerware. It has like many, many coats of lacquer and that's built up um, over like, I don't know, dozens if not hundreds of layers. And then there's this like kind of sheen to it in the end. And it's interesting, he says, you know, you look at an object like that and actually have, I mean, I know this is radio, but um, I ended up finding one um, sort of like this like vintage lacquerware. Oh, but it's good for me to see. And so, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so when you look at this in in daylight, it's like shiny. Um, I think he even may have referred it to it as like, you know, possibly seeming kind of kitschy. And when you look at it, and I've done this, um, cut at nighttime, cut out all the lights, put on a candle, and there's like a real depth um, to the black ink that's sort of layered. And so all these specks of gold um, almost become like cosmic in a sense, like you're looking into a black void with these kind of sparkling stars and so it was just like such a i mean it's a small thing but it's like such a i think really meaningful example of like shifting how we shifting the conventions of how we perceive what everything that's going on around us so that's yeah that's um why i love that book and so that i mean before before reading it i was like thinking about my drawings in particular, I was like, okay, this is about language. But after reading the book, I just started thinking more broadly about like perception in general. Language helps shape perception, but there's all these other variables. And sometimes even, you know, going back to like language and how, what we attribute to shadows, those things get dragged into like, you know, um, other ways we use language. Like if, shadows is equivalent to blackness, then some of those attributes of like dangerous or mysterious get dragged into sort of blackness as a kind of subjectivity, which becomes like really problematic. Um, So anyway, I just like thinking of things that disrupt the ways we uh, have been sort of socialized to view things that are lacking nuance. Because if you think about it, if you just looking around you, if you try to expel all the shadows, like turn on as so many, so many lights that all the shadows are gone, you'd be in sort of a blinding light. And so like shadows are necessary for us to see. I'm looking now and it's so true. Yeah. So without shadows, we wouldn't be able to really articulate distinctions between one thing and another. Um, So it's like, yeah, it's, the book definitely heightened those ideas for me. Yeah, they definitely give, I mean, they give shape, they give context. What do you love about the book? 
Um, okay, so what I love about the book, if, no, in fact, let me start again. Let me start from the beginning. So I first came across it when, um, oh, it must have been 2016. And actually, I wrote about this kind of recently. It was 2016, and there was this exhibition in Kumasi. Um, Kumasi, Ghana, for those who might not know where Kumasi is. <laughs> and um, it was an exhibition by... Um, some members of the Department of Painting and Sculpture at KNUST, um, Robin Riskin, Patrick Akanta, and Selam Kuji. And they had this exhibition in um, an old um, railway depot. And Patrick Akanta was, you know, walking me through the exhibition, telling me about some of the works and stuff. And he said, oh, this, this place reminds me of um, Tanazaki's text, um, Tanazaki's essay in the Phrase of Shadows. I was like, oh, I've never heard of this. You know, what is it kind of thing? You know, they had like these long lights that come down from the, the roof, I guess the roof, and shadows everywhere. And I kind of wrote recently in, in that text um, that the shadow, that the place itself is kind of like a shadow. Like it's, you know, it's not being used anymore um, for what it was initially supposed to be for. People are living there and um, life is happening, but it's kind of like a shadow, and I'll put that in adverted commas, of its like former life, um, but like a beautiful shadow, do you know what I mean, with so much possibility. I, 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 yeah, I don't know, maybe maybe I'll send you that text after, because um, well, at least that, that passage, um, you might, it might resonate with you. Um, so yeah, there's, for me, there's something about in the shadows, there's like possibility, like we, anything a shadow, you know, you see a shadow and it could be a shadow of anything almost. It could be a bottle, it could be um, a jar, it could be a phone. Like, you can't necessarily see what a shadow is of necessarily. Of course, sometimes you have, like, distinct shadows of, like, a chair or, you know, something, like, super distinct, but um, not always. So I kind of like that ambiguity, yeah. Um, so I think that was one of the things that really resonated with me um, with that text, Um just the possibility in shadows. And I think you speak really well, like you really hit the nail on the head about um, our perceptions of like purity and whiteness and all of those kinds of things that, you know, come into play in language and um, how we use certain words. So yeah, I think it's a really layered, it's a really layered text that has quite a few different branches that you could go in. Um, I guess with regards to your work, and maybe I should say here that I first came across your work, I don't even know if it was like 2013 or something. When did you do that mural at Alliance Francaise? Yeah, that was either 2013 or 2014. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I think that was when I first came across your work. And, you know, you had these huge, beautiful, figurative portraits um, that were kind of made up, well, not kind of, that were made up of, of text, of language. And it's also kind of funny how all these years... I'm, it's only recently that I'm like making more connections between the kind of work that we do. <laughs> At the time, I was like, "This just looks great." <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. but <laughs> but now, like, sort of thinking more, um, maybe maybe you could. In fact, maybe you could give um, like um, an intro into your practice, um, particularly as it relates to language um, and text, and then we can like further explore it. Um, and then relate it mm -hmm. to the text that we're talking about now. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I should say I thought I always wanted to be an artist and I thought I was like a painter. And then um, 
through undergraduate school, I painted portraits. So I think at the root, at the core, I'm interested in portraiture um, and making like figurative images. Uh, the painting, I was really struggling with the painting, so I gave that up and then eventually um, developed a practice where I make images by writing. And that initially came about um, when, you know, I wasn't making a lot of work, but, or any work actually, but I kept notebooks. And so when I did eventually start like sketching again, um, some writing overlapped with the sketch. And there was this like realization that the quality of the written line is no different than the quality of the drawn line, except with the written line, we've assigned meaning to a series of marks so we can read it. Um, but those marks are initially like abstract until we assign meaning to it. So then, I mean, that led me on this quest to like think about like writing as a kind writing as a technology, the invention of writing and like ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia and even like Mesoamerica and Asia. But just thinking about how much of our experience is like assigning meaning to our visual experience that it's, always contingent meaning that like um it changes in context and so even words like the fact that word a single word can have multiple meanings depending on the context in which you say it like all that stuff's really interesting and kind of like emphasizes language as this kind of blurry um kind of amorphous constantly expanding thing um, it's not rigid. It can't all just be contained in a kind of like dictionary, um, that sort of thing. So anyway, all that to say, I make drawings by writing. Um, and so I've been experimenting with different ways of doing that. Some is like handwriting text. <laughs> uh, other, other drawings are made by using rubber letter stamps. So step, stamping a text out in repetition. And then more recently, um, I've been spending a lot of time embossing text into paper, um, which to me connects with um, like early um, like uh, hieroglyphic forms where you car where a relief was carved into stone or um, a relief into clay, and to tie that back to shadows is when you do an embossment or a relief, if there's no like ink or paint, which um, when I first start to make these drawings, there isn't, it's a mark that's only visible because of its shadow. So if you see, um, what's a good example? I don't know, like invitations often have these kind of embossed lettering where the text is raised up a bit in the paper um, or even like, uh, in architectural forms, like the name of a building or a city will be like etched or carved into a stone or block or something. And it's interesting because, you know, it's just by na the nature of changing the surface. So then when you change like a flat surface and start to make indentations into it, the light hits it differently. And so then you get this mark that's just shadow and so that's what some of these 
like reliefs are. And so, you know, I make these reliefs and then I do these rubbings on top of it to render the figure. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that summarizes some of the work. There's this line that, that he writes in the book or in the essay. Um, let me see if I can, well, there's like a couple of lines, but I'll just read the whole thing. Um, I have opened my, the essay that I was talking about, I'll just read it. Um, so this is this is me, and then I'm also going to quote um, him. So I've written here, um, the beauty in non-shiny things, as Tanizaki describes, includes Japanese paper, unpolished copper crockery, and muted Chinese jade crystals. He refers to objects that absorb light rather than reflect it, like at that point in the morning or evening where there's enough natural light to see, but not enough to illuminate. He goes on to write, a light room would no doubt have been more convenient for us too than a dark room. The quality that we call beauty, however, must always grow from the realities of life. And our ancestors, forced to live in dark rooms, presently came to discover beauty in shadows, ultimately to guide shadows towards beauty's ends. I mean, like, <laughs> you it's, know? It's yeah. so rich. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's literally what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, the, just, the yeah, longer end there. of our history is, is by living with natural light, uh, including, you know, well, made like fire and that sort of thing. Um, that also, and so, I mean, it's only in the past, you know, whatever century when was electricity invented, uh, more than a century, but um, uh, that we, it introduced other ways of seeing, but there's, you know, there's this tendency to like set up these kind of hierarchies. And so the convention is like the hierarchy for seeing is bright light, um, vivid, uh, click, you know, clarity, all these things sort of like dominate this um, um, sense of like what it is to understand an object or a person and um, sort of shun away things that are more like obscure or subtle. And Tanizaki really embraces the subtlety and the nuance because there are other things to notice, other qualities there that are just as factual as the qualities that are apparent to us in the bright light. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that hierarchy that you talk about, because, you know, as in the art world, we know about the hierarchies of classic art and like classic sculpture and classic 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 and what that is basically saying <laughs> aka like old white people's art like you know what I mean yeah. and I say old but not even old yeah. but like yeah like from a history and then continuing into present day into contemporary um how does that or that understanding like as a as a graduate because you said you were were you in grad school did you say it was grad school when you first read it which was probably also around the same time you read it, so like 2016. So how, you know, as you're, as you're going through the academy and reading this kind of text, like how is that informing the way you, you make art or think about your art at least and others? I mean, I, it sort of, it kind of went in multiple directions. It showed me something in the work that was already there that I didn't notice. So... Um, an example of that is like what making the portraits um, comes from the photo come, comes from a photograph 
And I did not, for a long time, I did, would not consider myself a photographer in any sense. It was just a means to an end. I'd make, I had already, I committed myself to like making images almost entirely from photographs that I make with few exceptions. Like if I'm doing something around an archival image, that's, that's an example exception. But, um, so, but I didn't quite, um, grasp the possibilities available to me in photography until, um, I finally took a photography class in grad school. Um, and, uh, thinking about like, what is the nature of a photograph? The photograph is an index or record of light and shadow. So what you're getting is, you know, light coming through the lens of a camera and that being light and, and then the, the light and the shadows being recorded and what ultimately becomes the photograph. And so I was already, you know, when I make the photographs for the drawing, I was already like working with black and white images. And I love it because sometimes color interferes with how you see an image. Like when you change it to black and white, you can clearly see a sort of tonal value. And um, I mean, it's interesting to me on, on the one hand because of that, but then also, you know, because I was committed to thinking about writing as a technology, you know, I would write with black ink or pencil on white paper. Um, and actually most of the papers I work on are papers from Japan. So, you know, I've lived with this experience of like working with that kind of non, like. Mm. Is that a coincidence? Sure. Yeah. Cause I, I was working with Japanese papers like way long, like way before working on the book. And there's just qualities about the paper, which he acknowledges in the book um, that I completely relate to because there's a kind of like softness and subtlety. A lot of it, most most of the one I use, the ones I use are handmade. Um, and so the edge of the paper has this interesting like deckled texture to it. Um, there's a suppleness that is nuanced that I can I've been playing around with in terms of like how to make an impression in that in the paper. So there are all these qualities that um this paper affords uh so i guess i'm kind of losing my train of thought but um what the original question was but uh i know because i totally interrupted no no it's no no it's okay i mean i think um i think you were we were trying to connect how sort of understanding shadows crept into the work and so it started with like rethinking how i made photographs yeah so I then I then really expanded the way I made photographs. And so rather than just making these sort of like still kind of stoic um, and just like straightforward images, I started playing around with making like long exposures, which, you know, leaves the camera lens open. So it cr inherently creates this kind of blur and it captures the movement of the figure for whatever space of time that the lens is open. And I've been thinking about like just the term motion picture and like when you think of motion picture, you think of like a film and a film was made of just like a sequence of many, many, many photos um, quickly spun woven together. A long exposure is like a motion picture, but in one single frame because it just captures that duration of time in the same in a single image. 
And um, that just, it opened up so much more in terms of making a more dynamic and active image that in a way blur, the blur of the photograph was like equivalent to like the shadow space that Tanizaki talks about, the sort of nuanced subtlety um, and other qualities that I maybe can't even articulate, but it's like almost has like a ghostly presence um, in these images and then translating them into drawings adds this other thing to it. So yeah, that's, I'd say how the book has had a direct um, impact on the work. I've also, that it opened the door to reading a ton of other books about shadows, <laughs> including ones from like books about like, the physics <laughs> oh. of shadows, um, just like how strange of an ent entities they are. And you kind of alluded to it when you were talking about how like the shape doesn't always conform to the thing that it's, to its caster, the shadow caster. And so how oftentimes it's a kind of distortion in one way or another, but it always relies on context. So depending on where light's coming from, how many directions light's coming in from changes and every move you make changes the sh shadow. And I just love how like it's a entity that is always active and never stops. <laughs> and, um, you know, these things, this appears in these kinds of photos. Yeah. That's it. It's yeah. super dynamic. And you know what, when I read that text as well, I also think like it's, I mean, you spoke about this as well. You mentioned the sensory, you know, it's very sensorial. You can almost feel like you can touch and see things he's describing. Um, and then it also reminded me of your, of some of your other work, um, particularly the the weaving the 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 material I mean it's all material but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying some of some of that work maybe you could um speak a bit about that as well yeah I so um I start I got this book and it's also kind of connected to um Japanese traditions but I'm also really interested in bridging that into things of my own experience and even and you know working with um uh uh weavers who've been weaving for generations in ghana but i i came across this, this book by a japanese um weaver and she describes this process of making paper into thread um and so paper a lot of japanese papers are made from this um fiber called kozo and it's a really strong fiber so even when if the papers are like really thin and translucent it's still really strong um uh so i read her book and was kind of interested in experimenting with it then i got a, another book about it um that sort of works through how the process might have been invented and so there's a story that during the feudal period in japan some spies needed to get across enemy lines with a secret message. Um, so they got paper, wrote the message on paper, processed it into thread, wove it into a cloth, and then carried it. And when it got to its recipient, the, that person undid everything to reveal the secret message. 
And so I think it kind of touches again back to this kind these kinds of ideas Tanazaki's talking about in the sense that there's a kind of space that it doesn't tell you everything on the surface. And uh, so ways of thinking through a kind of nuanced experience where rather than it being like legible or explicit, it's embodied instead. So this idea that um, text was made into a textile and then um, so that, it, you know, that text was essentially just like reconfigured um, and then it, it, to a point where it no longer looks like text at all. It just looks like hashes of like black ink spec, you know, spaced throughout this cloth. And then the fact that somebody could literally undo everything and we see resequence it to read it. I mean, that was just like so powerful to me and almost in a way like a metaphor for ways I've started thinking about portraiture now, like when, and, and just like encounters with other people. When you see someone, oftentimes the initial experience is just quite superficial just what's on the outside. And this idea of like any per every person, all of us embody all these things that aren't evident on the surface. And so we're sort of like carriers of information given that so much of who we are has to do with language that we've embraced and absorbed um, into our bodies and into our psyche. And so, I mean, in a way, this form of making a kind of textile that's like text and textile um, at once is um, just, I don't know, a really beautiful metaphor for that. So all, all that to say, um, I started experimenting with this process, writing text on paper, processing it into thread and weaving it into a cloth. And last summer um, I've been doing it and I have a loom here at home where I that I can weave on. So I made several pieces on my own, but I also wanted to, give space to like other kinds of knowledge systems. And um, so, you know, I went back to Ghana and, you know, I've been obsessed with like West African weaving traditions in general, but I worked with a um, Awe weaver there and um, I gave him some threads that I made, the weaver, um, uh, some threads that I made and he incorporated that into um, a cloth in a design that we that we chose to get. Well, I chose, but it's in this sort of pattern. And what I love about like textiles and, and something I sort of also realized in grad school when I was like studying the invention of writing, is like weaving was a technology that was invented way before writing. And so weaving is like an earlier version of encoding information through symbols or even just material can tell you where it came from, given, you know, trade routes and all that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's been really meaningful to like sit with, you know, I now collect a lot of cloth and all so many of them have very particular meanings. I may not know it, but it's a code that is legible to someone or a group of people. And so I wanted to kind of bring that um, and have that intersect with this process of writing text and turning that into thread. 
So I've been making these weavings kind of collaboratively with a weaver there in Ghana using mostly like uh, Awe weaving patterns. Um, so I'm coming off the back of a trip to Wa in Upper West. Um, Nabuke Foundation had um, the new, uh, sorry, the Wari Festival, um, which is like a festival on weaving traditions. And I mean, my work in the last couple of years has been leaning less weaving, more more sewing, but the threads and you know what you say about the um, illegible um, aspects of writing and and some of those things has been really at the at the centre of the work that I've been doing. Um, and I remember, was it last year? I think, or maybe it was even the year before. Actually, you and I spoke. Um, I think it was a super either late night in LA. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think that was in early morning in Accra. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> twenty twenty already. Can you imagine? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but that was a really that was a really enriching conversation because um, I kind of you know I was experimenting at the time and I kind of felt. Um, not validated, but like not alone. Do you know what I mean? And of course, there's so many people doing things like this, but where I know you, it was like, okay, so this isn't a complete madness. Like there's someone who's really doing, yeah. who's really going through this Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. um, so anyway, yeah, I'm coming off the back of this trip from, um, it was just last weekend, a couple of weekends ago. Um, and... Um, a friend as well who was also on the trip, she's a filmmaker, her name's Nuatama, um, and she had this video work, um, it was unbraiding, oh, I can't remember the full title, but if I get it, I'll let you okay. know. But basically the idea was a video lecture, and the idea was looking at, um, she had Kente cloth and she had um, Ashoke, which is from Nigeria, looking at that as a form of um, script writing, so out of the tradition, and I say traditional, but let's say Western um, format of like um, act one, beginning, middle, end, like a, a, quite a linear way of script writing. She was looking at um, these pieces of cloth to get, to, get to, 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 to imagine how a script might be. And it was so fascinating. And again, if I get my hands, I don't know, I'll have to holler at her and see how we can get that. But yeah, wow. it was really like mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, I love that because I think it's so easy, like when conventions are established, it's so easy to think like, this is the way it is. And this is maybe like the best way. And there are all these other forms. And I mean, I think artists are good at like unpacking this, um, these kind of hierarchies, but like, uh, there are all these other forms that can, like, like you said, like this idea that uh, kind of linear progression of beginning, middle, and end. There's other ways to construct it. Because, you know, even thinking about, like, I think a lot about memory and how memory is not linear at all. And, um, at all. But we have to rely on memory to sort of make sense of the past and proceed into the future. But they're always kind of, it's not fixed mm. and it loops and, it morphs over time. Um, and so I think other forms, other um, conventions that's not so linear do a great job of addressing that. The fact that, um, you know, uh, sort of the very crux of our human experience is memory. 
and that it's not a linear path and it's quite complex. It would be interesting to see how many, you know, not even how many, but what it might look like by including some of these non-linear ways more um, firmly into our daily lives and practices. And also shout out to Nautama for being just sick and like a great filmmaker and a great friend because, yeah, she's lit. (laughs) I I Um, hope I can see that too sometime. Yeah, for sure. I think you'd love it. And also, so the festival in and of itself, I mean, I think one of my highlights, there was a moment where there was a guy, Mandela, um, who is based in Accra. He's doing like traditional um, kente weaving with like the loom with like your foot, you know, the whole foot. Like you press the, mm-hmm. you press it down, and yeah. then you, yeah. So he's using that process exactly. And then the women from um, Upper West who also have their own weaving traditions, um, um, Batakari and so on. They're standing around him like, okay, so this is how he does it. Oh, that's the way they do it like this. Because oh, it's like a different way of doing it. And that was probably one of the highlights of my time at that festival because. It was like, what, 10, 15, 20 women standing around like, mm-hmm, okay. Oh, so the design goes like, like it was so good. It was what? so good. And I loved that exchange so much. <laughs> you know, I, so the, um, uh, the weaver I was working with, when I watched him do it, what I didn't realize, and I've seen like, picked, I've seen, I've seen people like working on these looms um, plenty of times. But what I didn't realize until like looking up close and watching him use my thread is that it's woven upside down, like not face up. And so you're, there's a lot of like, you're weaving it, you're basically weaving it from the backside. And so that, I feel like, I don't know, there's something to that that's really kind of interesting. And again, yeah, it's like a shift in orientation that I don't know, there's something also there. And that in that process, like why that is that would be cool to unpack. Yeah. (laughs) Funny thing um, I've been doing with my sewn text is that so basically the process is that I write on the text. So I write on the sheet, um, a text that I've written. Um, but I write it linearly, like how we would write in sort of English language. Um, but what I've started doing in some cases is um, sewing from from right to left or even up and down, like in a non-left to right way, just to, yeah, just, just for shaggy reasons, as they say, just to see how that looks and just the idea of writing backwards and and kind of furthering that illegibility of, of the text has been um, quite a fun and interesting experience, uh, experiment. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like what you say. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, just even um, sort of shifts like that, I feel like it helps you notice the form, like letters are a form and there it's a form that's been designed. Like people have designed the letters that we read. And um, when you change the sort of orientation or direction of it, I think it's an opportunity to bring that to the surface of like, an H is the shape, is a shape and not just a, it's not just a letter. Like, I think it's a way to sort of like not take for granted the fact that these, so much of our world and experiences designed and 
even thinking through again, like what I was talking about at the beginning, like how we assign meaning to form. Yeah, I mean, the literary is visual. Yeah. You know, if you don't, if you can't read a language, it just becomes a complete visual experience. Exactly. So, yeah, I guess that's also some of the, I mean, that also goes back to um, the first work, well, not the first work, but the work that I first encountered um, from you and you know you can't necessarily read the text of the that you that, that made up the, the the portraits so you're just having a visual experience looking at these at these people um what was that text actually oh it was this um audrey lord phrase that says i'm deliberate deliberate and afraid of nothing and so it it repeats like the entire length of the wall so there's many areas where it's very legible, but many areas that it's not. So where the figure is, it's the least legible because I just had to write and repeat that so many times that it, it does become illegible. But that became a space for thinking about um, what I was talking about before with the way that you know we as people are kind of containers of information and or like vessels um, of information where sometimes it's like legible and easy to see at the surface and sometimes it's not. Um, so can we touch a bit more on that idea of illegibility and is it is there a, for you is there a desire for something to become legible or are we or are you satisfied in its illegibility or a bit of both or something else like what what are your thoughts on that? Um, lately I've been leaning into the illegible. <laughs> I'm not, and it's not, it's not even necessarily to like disguise what's said. Cause oftentimes I title the work by the phrase that I've used to make it, but it is just like sitting with this idea of like embodiment. And I also really enjoy this experience of like from a distance, you can't tell at all that it's writing, um, especially in the more recent things um, with the sort of like, especially with the like stamp drawings. And then you get up close and there, there's just this shift that happens depending on your proximity to the work. So from a distance, it's like, you know, an image just trying to crystallize, um, you know, there many of the recent ones are blurry. So your eyes trying to lock them in a kind of focus. And then there's this idea, you know, the closer you get, the more you can see. But the closer you get with some of these drawings, the more the image falls apart. But then you notice other qualities like, oh, there's lettering here. Oh, is the entire thing made of lettering? What does it say? And you know, even if you can't just read it straight out looking at the surface, it is a way of like, presenting the vessel that presenting the figure as a vessel of information um and the title then serves as a kind of like index or um key that unlocks what was said in some of them so it's not necessarily like a secret but it's a i you know i i like the idea of making these images that reveal itself over time so it kind of rewards someone who's willing to like sit with it for a bit and look you know look slow down looking um and so i think illegibility 
like that space helps um, do that too. But I mean, at the same time, people can just like, you know, always have the option of just like looking quickly and moving on. Um, But it, there's less you get from it. I mean, which I guess is the case with anything. Um, can you, you just mentioned like titles and like um, the codes or the information that titles can can reveal? And I feel like I don't know. Coming from a literary background, <laughs> titles can be quite quite important to me, um, especially now with a more with a visual practice as well. So I'm still kind of like holding on to that literary mm-hmm. part of me that's like. Um, but what does it say? <laughs> you know, um, what what how how would the titles sort of come about for you? Or do you have a do you have maybe you could share some titles that have some meaning to you? Sure, I, I'll say it, it's funny, and I I feel like somebody famous probably said this, but I don't remember who. But like for an artist, <laughs> the title is the last brushstroke, like the thing that completes the work is giving it the title, totally. and it adds and just another layer. <laughs> another layer of meaning to it so um the title so the titles well there, there's a lot of work in, in sort of like figuring out like what the text is going to be that I use to make an image and that's pretty intuitive sometimes the image comes first and I, there's a long time before I work with the image because I haven't identified a text that maybe like locks in or feels like a kind of embodiment. Um, and then sometimes the text comes first and then later I find an image that it, I think it'll pair with. So there's a series I started a few years ago called Blur in the Interest of Precision. And that's actually a phrase from um, the poet Fred Moten, poet and scholar Fred Moten. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I just, I love it so much, partly because, I mean, there's this poetic, um, uh, you know, depth to that phrase, but also it kind of reveals my working process. So in ma- even though I'm making, rendering these sort of blurry images, it is so precise because I'm literally following like translating the information from the photograph into text on paper. And there's a lot of, you know, it's fairly methodical. And so like blur in the interests of precision, I don't know, it kind of sits with like just my process too of how I make images. Um, But so within that series, there was a drawing that repeated that phrase. Um, But um, another title was uh the poet is the poetics of a pivot and so the drawing repeats is made by repeating that phrase over and over again and so that image shows this figure who's moving but her elbow is like kind of doing it shown doing this like swinging motion and so you see the kind of like drag of her arm because again these are made from these like long exposure images that show the figure in motion um, and so I came up with that phrase because I was thinking about like, just in the ways we've talked about, like light and shadow, and even with the series title blur in the interest of precision, there are these things that are like, feel like binary, like opposites, um, like light and shadow blur and precision. 
And I'm interested in thinking about where things that feel opposite, where they can coexist. And the pivot as a motion is interesting because something that's pivoting is fixed in one place. So it's stationary, but then it's moving at the same time. So movement and stationary are two opposites that are coexisting in a kind of pivoting motion. So our elbow's doing that pivot. And so that's why I chose that phrase to go with that image. Um, another example is um, there's a drawing I did of uh, this artist. Her name is Lauren Halsey. She's LA based um, and she's really interested in architecture. And so I use the phrase architecture as the shadow or sorry, shadow as the architecture of the visual field. And so what I was talking about earlier of, of like shadows articulate our visual experience without shadows, we can't really see and, and understand our sort of environment. Um, and so it's in a way shadows are like the architecture, like, like the type, like the name says, like architecture of our vision, of our vision. Um, and so I thought that went well, I thought it would sit well with this draw, um, drawing my friend who is uh, deeply influenced by architectural forms. Um, so yeah, that, those are a couple examples. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of nice how inadvertently maybe, I don't even know if it is inadvertently, but how the shadows or the blurs, and that is just like a constant, like that's in there, like yeah. <laughs> it's inside the work, you can't remove it, it's just in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's still and challenging. It still challenging the perceptions yeah yeah and then a, a lot of those drawings i also emboss the paper so there are shadows on the paper besides just my rendering of shadows they're like actual shadows um and that's been an interesting way to sort of like further the blurring of the figure um because when depending on how it's lit um moving the light around shifts what appears to be the edge of the figure um, when there's that added embossment layer. So, yeah, I'm just like uh, trying to kind of not bring everything together for the sake of like trying to have everything I'm interested in in, in one image, but um, slowly I've been able to just like introduce other processes besides just writing that I think elaborates on a broader sense of um, perception, which I'm really interested in unpacking. I feel like, um, like you're using language, like language, again, like you said, obviously comes outside of just writing, but in the material form, in the texture, in the decisions that are made for the weaving processes. And, you know, you mentioned another material earlier, like glass and all these kinds of, um, languages, um, that aren't necessarily semantically understood seem to be coming through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just anything that has something to say about, again, like perception. And uh, I mentioned, you know, before we started recording that I'm working with, uh, uh, well, I guess now two different glass companies, but um, there's one in LA that um, I worked with to make these stained glass windows and we installed them in the gallery windows for my last show. And, you know, if you, 
you know, normally when we're looking out of like a window, it's like clear kind of flat glass. I love stained glass because it's an opportunity to like use textured glass and things like that. So we just, I just picked a bunch of different colors and made a kind of like pixelated color glass window. But then a lot of the glass has these sort of like natural kind of undulations. And so when you're, you get this um, cast of colors coming through the window, um, but then you also get this kind of blurring because of the, you know, this sort of like rippled surface of the glass and that change from one square to the next, like how intense that blurring would be. But it was a way to sort of amplify like um, how we see and how distortions appear. And these are like literal physical distortions in, um, through the glass, but I think there's ways to think about it figuratively, like whatever context we're in, there's probably always some distortion in how we understand what's happening in a space. So um, that, it was really enjoyable to um, start to work, work with that material. My friend, and I'm saying my friend because maybe, yeah, but also the photographer, Eric Jemphy, um has this work, you know, he's using glass plates a lot now. So maybe maybe when you're in a crowd, you guys will speak about it. We'll but um, yeah. yeah, a lot of the things you're talking about with the textures, yeah, you should, you should. The textures and the blur, blurriness, blurredness. I don't know what the word is there. So much for language, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> just just like you mentioned, those are some of the themes coming through there as well. Um, the ambiguities and the complexity, complexities, um, yeah. They're, they're all coming through. So um, I don't know, I guess we're kind of, yeah, we're kind of near the end. I just want to say um, that I asked Kintura for some um, songs that she's been listening to and they all are a bit gloomy, <laughs> a bit in the shadows. And <laughs> in the shadow space. Though the shadow but isn't the always a... Space. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's super... Without without realizing, I think. But um, one song that I love, I don't know if you do you know Most Deaf um, with um, Ron Isley, Beauty in the Dark. Oh man, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, Beauty in the Dark, and it just as I was, I think it was just today as I was thinking about this this essay, and I was like, that song is literally it. So yeah, even in the gloom <laughs> and in the shadows, there's beauty. <laughs> I think. Wait, hold on. Before we end, I should just read this. Well, line I think that... I think there's some like. Yes. Oh no! Go 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 go! No, I, was just, I was just gonna say. I think I was just gonna say. It's not. I mean, I, the songs I named are, I guess, like dominated by a kind of like melancholy. But there's also. It's just. I think it feels like haunting, and but not in a scary way, but just like a, a another presence, like another layer of presence in the space of and and it's like ephemeral i think ephemeral is the word i like to think about when thinking of these um these songs yeah i feel like that's the thing because again that that um exhibition i spoke about um it, the, name, the name of the exhibition was if you love me the whole thing everything was eph ephemeral can you look at me now because there was, it was such a transitory place. People were walking through, people were living and then moving on. Like the whole, that whole vibe. And I feel like, yeah, there's, there's nothing static about it. There's nothing, there's not like a pure singleness. 
and I think Tanizaki kind of talks against that is you know challenging the idea of like a pure singleness you know and um yeah I think that's what the beauty beauty in the shadows kind of brings about um so so this was the line that he writes um we find beauty not in the thing itself but in the patterns of shadows the light and the darkness that one thing against another creates so yeah love it <laughs> I think that's it. What do you think? I love it. I love it. A, a, great, a great way to, to wrap up the conversation. So, Yeah, perfect. Well, Kintua, thank you so much. Can't wait to see you in Accra later this year. Yeah, same, same. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I love having, you know, another person we can like geek out about text and writing and art and how right. all those things intersect. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm, I'm here for it, so. Right. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you also to our listeners. Um, we'll be back again, I think, next month. So um, stay tuned.